Hello and welcome to the Wittenberg Door, a weekly broadcast that examines what Lutheran Christians believe about God, the world, and us. I'm Pastor Brett Cornelius of Gethsemane Lutheran Church, and I invite you to join us for the next hour. And later, we will take questions at 740-383-9944, that's 740-383-WWGH, or on Facebook at the Wittenberg Door, where you can submit your questions live. Please join us now on the Wittenberg Door. Good Friday morning, everybody. This is Pastor Brett Cornelius with Gethsemane Lutheran Church, and you're listening to the Wittenberg Door on WWGH. Um, the Wittenberg Door is a call-in program. The number is 740-383-9944. And as we discuss our various topics today, if you have a comment or a question you'd like to ask, comment you'd like to make, we invite you to call in. That's 383-9944-383-WWGH. And uh, we have, uh, I have with me today on, on the controls, flying the, flying the airplane, Sean again. Good morning. Sean, thanks for, uh, thanks for coming and showing up. That's... Well, Always you. nice to have somebody here, you know what I mean? That we can play off each other. Yeah, huh? yeah. yeah. So, um, well, uh, folks, you know, when we first started, we had a, a format that uh, we would address uh, news topics. And I think that's kind of got a little bit old. You know, we've uh, there, there may be things that, that we need to address um, as we go along. But I think uh, some of the major news topics. So what we're going to do now for the next foreseeable time is I thought that I would uh, just talk a little bit about what Lutherans believe in general. So uh, so I thought we, we'd really talk about our Lutheran catechism. Now, uh, even that language is a little unfamiliar if you've grown up in a in a you know, Protestant household, uh, especially if uh, evangelical household, fundamental household, uh, the language of catechism sounds a little strange, right? Um, it's actually a, a Greek word, comes from a Greek word, catechism comes from a Greek word that just means instruction. Um, Interesting. Yeah, so, uh, and it's found in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, the Gospel of Luke uh, is written... Luke tells us in the beginning of his gospel, so that uh, the person that he's writing to, we think, uh, uh, could be a person, could be a community, that he's writing to Theophilus, uh, which means a lover of God, and, and Luke addresses, addresses the gospel to Theophilus, and he says, I wanted to write this and inform you about the things of which you have been catechized of which you have been instructed. So Theophilus, if it is a person, and we're not real sure of that, but, but it's likely that it is, uh, but if it is a person, it's a person or a community of persons that have been in, instructed in the Christian faith. And uh, so they've been catechized. And now Luke is going to write this gospel so that they have a, a little better understanding of the life of Christ and, and what the gospel is. So the word catechism gets used uh, because it comes from scripture. We know that uh, Christians were catechizing um, disciples of Jesus from uh, very early on using, using the word catechism. 
Um, there is an early Christian document that was found about 200 years ago, 100 years ago, uh, a document called the Didache, which is uh, the, the instruction or the teaching of the 12 apostles. And, it, and essentially what it was, was it covered the chief parts of the Christian faith. It, it uh, talked about the things that were most important to Christians and what every Christian should know. And then through history, there were various catechisms. Uh, for us, Lutherans, um, the primary catechism was uh, Luther's catechism. Luther wrote, actually wrote two catechisms. He wrote a catechism for uh, children. Actually, it was uh, the, the small catechism was actually uh, it was a catechism for adults, for pastors and for parents that would teach uh, pastors and parents how to instruct children in the Christian faith. That was the small catechism. And it's the one that's most familiar to most Lutherans. If you are listening, if you grew up Lutheran, you grew up learning uh, the Luther small catechism, oh. written in 1529. And uh, it covers the chief parts of the Christian faith. It, it talks about the Ten Commandments, talks about God's law. It uh, teaches us about the Apostles' Creed, so it teaches us what God has done for us in uh, creating us and sending us his Son and, and in redeeming us, what he'll continue to do for us as, as, his, as his people and what he'll do for us in the future. The Apostles' Creed covers those tenets. And, um, so you have the uh, Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, and then uh, everyone needs to know how to pray so the small catechism teaches us about prayer, and it teaches us what the Lord's Prayer is. You know, Jesus gave us a prayer, uh, which has since been known as the Lord's Prayer. Some people call it the Our Father, Our Father who art in heaven, and almost, almost every Christian knows this prayer. So Luther in the catechism teaches what this prayer is, what it's about, what, what we're asking for, and why we're asking for it. Um, and then, uh, and then Luther goes from the the Lord's Prayer. He talks about baptism, and he talks about confession and absolution, and he talks about the Lord's Supper, things that every Christian should know about. So these are the what are called the six chief parts of the Christian faith. He adds a little later. He adds the uh, what are called the table of duties, uh, the things that we owe, for instance, to our government to our neighbor, to our employer, to our employee, uh, what, a, what a government official owes to the citizens, you know. Uh, so the duties that we owe each other. And uh, so those are, that's, that's essentially, that's what Luther's small catechism covered. He went on, um, in the same year, he wrote what is called the large catechism, where uh, it, it is more for, the, the small catechism uh, is chiefly for the instruction of children and it's meant to be memorized by the way uh, now we got Lee here with us Lee welcome good morning and uh, Lee you were you grew up Lutheran and you grew up uh, you had to memorize the small catechism right do you remember yeah. those days yeah. three years I think three years you went through three years uh-huh I think by the time I went through it was two years <laughs> we had to learn it a lot quicker, I guess. But um, but we do three years in our in our congregation now. It just takes that long for for people to learn it well. Uh, well, this large catechism then was for uh, for 
again, for pastors and parents, so that they would have, as they taught their children, they themselves would have a fuller understanding of what these things were. So you have to know the Ten Commandments because the Ten Commandments is God's law. It teaches us what God requires of us. It teaches us the standard for which God judges righteousness. And, um, and it teaches us something about ourselves, most importantly. The Ten Commandments teach us that we all, as, as Paul will say in the, in the book of Romans, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, I think this is what a lot of people don't get about the Christian faith. They think the Christian faith, like many other religions, is a religion of doing good. And so the point of the Christian faith is to be a good person and to have God accept you on the basis of your goodness. And that's about as far from the Christian faith as you can get. Now, most religions, that's what religions teach. Religions teach uh, goodness and, and reward on the basis of that goodness. But the Christian faith teaches our inability to be good. Uh, it, teaches us, it teaches us that we are fallen creatures in need of a Savior. And so really, primarily, what the Ten Commandments do for us is they, they set us up. The Ten Commandments are, are, although they do provide instruction, the Ten Commandments primarily are like a diagnostic machine. You know, you uh, were telling me before the program that you had to go in for a scope. Yep. And what did that scope do? Well, that scope uh, told you that there was scar tissue yep. that needed to be corrected. You're going to have uh, you're going to have reconstructive surgery yep. uh, to get that fixed, right? Well, the scope didn't heal you. The scope didn't fix you, right? Right. But the scope just showed you your problem. And primarily, that's what the Ten Commandments do. They show us our problem, and our problem is we're sinners. Our problem is we need a savior. And so when you know that about yourself, now, if, uh, if you hadn't had the scope, and let's say you hadn't had any symptoms for which you went to the doctor, and you were just in a regular checkup at your doctor, and your doctor said to you, uh, uh, Sean, I think you should have some reconstructive surgery. You know, what would your reaction be? You'd be... Yeah, I freaked out. Wait a minute, Doc. <laughs> Why should I have reconstructive surgery, right? Right. Uh, because there, what's the problem? I don't have any problems. <laughs> but, well, I, you know, I just want to practice on you. <laughs> right? You say no. Right. Well, yeah. in the same way, if we, if we don't know that we have the disease, we're not going to accept the medicine. We're not going to accept the cure. Right? If we don't know we're sinners, if we believe somehow that we're righteous then why in the world would we need a Savior? So really, primarily, what the Ten Commandments do is they set us up. They diagnose our condition. And our condition is we're fallen creatures. We cannot, we cannot free ourselves from it. And we're condemned on account of our sin. So when we look at things like the First Commandment, the First Commandment says, so you shall have no other gods. And what does this mean, Luther says? Do you remember what this means, Lee? We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things, right? 
Lee, I'm going to have Lee go through remedial catechism now. <laughs> uh, we should well, it fear. Has been fifty years ago. So. <laughs> yeah, it's been a little while. Uh, we should fear, love, and trust in God. Well, you know, just uh, just take that statement. Boy, that's a lot of that's a lot of information there, isn't it? Fear, love, and trust. We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. What that means is. We should fear God above all things. What does it mean to fear God? Lee, what, what do you think when you hear that when you hear that phrase and a lot of it's it's in the scriptures a lot, right? Fear God and live, you know. Yeah, I, I uh, think I think maybe uh, fear often it sounds like you know, you're afraid of a horror story or something. Yeah. It's uh, but yeah, uh, I, I'm afraid of the dark, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's a yeah. Fear. It, it, it's it has more to do with reverence and with. Uh, with recognition and in awe of God. Yeah, you know, and it. Uh, I think something that approaches this, and of course, with God, everything is magnified. But something that might approach this is, we all we all had fathers, right? And we grew up with our fathers. We grew up respect. In in my case, I know, and I know there are households where this that doesn't occur, or uh, children that don't fear or respect their fathers. But I grew up in a household where my dad was, um, well, my dad was a tough guy. He was, uh, he was a, a, an army boxer. He was, a, he was a champion in the army. Really? Yeah. So uh, we had a boxing ring in our basement. And, 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 and boy, every time you had uh, friends over or cousins over, you had to put the gloves on. Right, and my dad. Uh, what was one of the things I remember a lot about my dad is is he would take on all comers. So my dad was in his late thirties, early forties, and and some guy would come along and wanna wanna take on my dad and uh, hear about his reputation or whatever. And my dad would invite him to the house and they'd have a boxing match. It is awesome. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> the kid. Every uh, when when all my cousins turned eighteen. Uh, my dad had a standing challenge with him that they, they could step into the ring with him, you know. And we had a boxing ring in our basement. Well, um, my dad was a, was pretty good disciplinary. He's a good father. He was a very good father. And so my attitude toward my father was one of um, uh, respect. Uh, I... I didn't defy my dad. I don't ever remember defying my dad or telling him I wasn't going to do something. Um, I always had a healthy, a healthy, I would say, a fear of my dad, but not in a negative sense. I was not afraid of my dad. I didn't think he would ever hurt me. Uh, I, I, I never worried about him um, in any kind of evil way. Or punching I, me out. Or punching me out, yeah. He, he was never abusive. Yeah. Uh, and... Um, uh, so I was never afraid of him, but but I respected him, and the and and the whole time I was growing up, I I uh, even when I did disobey him, I didn't do it defiantly. I didn't do it with a high hand. You know, it was more like uh, he'd tell me something and I just didn't do it. Uh, uh, but I knew there was punishment involved if I if I did defy him, and and so I grew up. You know, and and these are the days, of course. When you're growing up, you really don't know how great your parents are. You don't know how much they work for you. And it, that, that only comes with time, the appreciation of your parents. But so all that, you know, 
But I think that approaches, and of course, like I said, with everything God, with, with uh, everything about God is magnified. But I think that approaches the sense in which uh, we are to fear God. Uh, so, uh, it, in other words, we're we're to have respect for God. We're to we're to be in awe, like Lee said. We're to be in awe of God. We're to have reverence for God. We're not to take God lightly. I never treated my father like he was one of the guys, right? Right. He was always my dad. Uh, and, and we never treat God as if he's just, you know, just another Joe. He is, he is our Lord. You know, he's, he's the one from whom we receive our, our life. And um, the one who blesses us each and every day. The one who cares for us. The one who created us. Um, the one who, when he saw us in all our sin, redeemed us by the blood of his son. And so, um, so we, don't, we don't treat God as if he's just, uh, you know, one of the fellas. He is, he is God. And um, so we have fear of God. Well, what does it mean to love God? Well, we know what it means to love things. It means to want to cling to things. It means to not want to let them go, right? Right. Um, we have people in our lives that we love, uh, wives and husbands and children, and, uh, you know, friends even, that uh, parents that we, that we uh, 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 want to have in our lives. And when we lose them, of course, it's a terrible thing. When I lost my father in 1998, it was a very terrible thing because I loved him. And uh, so we people, people uh, love other people, properly so. Uh, there is a kind of a, a, a sinful love in which uh, the love of that person is magnified. You want to cling to them at any cost. That can be uh, you know, part of our sinful nature and can be dysfunctional. But, uh, but uh, what, are, what are some other things that people love? Well, people, unfortunately, don't just love people. They don't just love their neighbor. <laughs> but they love things, right? And sometimes they love things more than they love people. Right, yeah. Uh, they love money, for instance, more than they love others. And so they, what do they do? They cling to it. They hold on to it, right? Well, uh, God is that one to whom we owe love above all things. That is, we cling to God above all things. We, we want to please him. We want to have him in our lives more than any other thing that we have in our lives. More than father or mother, more than son or daughter, more than money, more than position, more than power. God is the most important that we cling to. Uh, so we're to love God. And uh, so we fear God, we love God, and we're to trust in God. Well, what does it mean to trust in something? Lee, when you think about trust, what, do you, what, what comes to mind? Uh, what are things people trust in? Well, people trust in themselves and their own wisdom. Yes. People trust in their mind. Yeah. They trust in their... Trust in their strength, yeah. Uh, they, they sometimes trust in other people. Uh, yeah. They expect other people will get them out of their problems. Yeah. Um, 
which can be unhealthy, right? And that's a big thing right there, what you just said, trusting people. Yeah. You don't get that nowadays too often. Yeah, well, people aren't really worthy of it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, you have you probably have a few people in your life that you can trust. Yeah. Thank, thank God. Right. You know, parents usually. You can trust, generally, you can trust parents. That's not true in every case, sadly. Yeah. Um, uh, generally, you can trust your spouse, your wife, or your husband. Again, not true in every case, sadly. Yeah. Generally, you can uh, trust your children with uh, things you need, or you know, my my adult children. I feel like I can trust them um, with uh, information, or you know, give them giving them my passwords or. Things like that, things that they need to know in case of an emergency. Um, you know, there, there's a few people you can trust, although even those closest relationships, we know that uh, sometimes there's a lack of trust. And, uh, and, but yet, who are we to trust above all? God. Trust God above all things. Trust his word. When he says something, you know, when your spouse or your parent says something or your child, you should be able to, to rely on that. You can't always do that. But when God says something, we should absolutely be able to rely on it because we know one thing, that God never lies. Right? When God promises something. Okay. So this is our duty to God. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods. Because when you uh, fear or love or trust something more than you fear, love, and trust in the one true God, you have really, in essence, replaced God. And you have now another God. You know, when I was in India, uh, we had, uh, you know, uh, I just driving down the street, you would see all these shrines to all these gods. And, and in India, there's over three million gods, believe really? it or not. Three million wow. gods. And as you're driving down the street, you see all these shrines to all these gods. And people coming, they'll lay flowers there, you know, whatever. Uh, and um, uh, where was I going with this? We don't think of ourselves as... Uh, most most people in, in the West think of themselves, if they think of themselves religious at all, they think of themselves as uh, monotheists. They think of their, I believe in one God, right? And yet, uh, although we may not have these multiplicity of gods that are, that are in other cultures, we do have things that we fear, love, and trust in God. Fear, love, and trust more than we fear, love, and trust in the one true God. Usually our opinion. Yeah, our opinion is a big one. Our friends, you know, peer, you know, a, 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 a kid in school, we all experience this, right? Right. It's called peer pressure. Well, essentially, what is peer pressure? Peer pressure is fearing uh, someone else more than you fear God. You know, when you're when your uh, when your friends say, "Come on, we're going to go do this or that," that you know is wrong, yeah. right? Yeah. And um, there was this old uh, farmhouse once that we went to. We broke all the windows out of it. Well, we knew this was wrong, but you know you couldn't not do it when all your friends were doing it. Right. You right? want to fit in. Yeah, you got to fit in, and and that's because you essentially you fear their opinion of you more than you fear God. God. 
And uh, so even in the West, we come up with all these different multiplicity of gods. Uh, and so what that teaches us, just this very first commandment is, we don't worship the one true God as we should. That we have failed in our duty to worship that one true God. And so we've broken the commandment. And we find ourselves, you know, when you break a law, what does that make you? Uh, makes you a... Makes you a criminal. Yeah, criminal. Right? Yeah. Yeah, it makes you guilty. And, and so every one of us, if we look honestly at our lives... We discover this about ourselves. This is, this is this diagnosis that's occurring as we're actually thinking about what the commandment means. Uh, and the diagnosis is that we are sinners. And if you're a sinner, what does even one sin do to you? Well, one, even one sin condemns you. And if you are under condemnation, then you have to ask yourself the question, what is my hope? What hope do I have if I've been condemned by God's law? Me, what hope do we have? Christ paid for all of our sins. Yeah. Christ came and he kept the, the first commandment. He kept all the commandments. He lived the life that we should have lived in heaven. And then he went to the cross and he suffered the just penalty for our sin by dying and being forsaken by God on the cross. He satisfied the wrath of God. For God is justly wrath, wrathful toward our sins. He suffered God's just wrath for our sins so that we could escape, so that we could be freed from our sin. In other words, the God whom we offended by our sin has rescued us from it. It's amazing, isn't it? Thing. It's amazing. It's a beautiful thing. And uh, so we, we're, we're uh, very happy that, um, that uh, God has done this for us in light, in light of who we are and what we deserve. Uh, well, we're going to go on uh, now this second part of the program. We're going to go to uh, now this upcoming Sunday, folks, in, at Gethsemane Lutheran Church is uh, a Sunday called Septuagesima Sunday. Now that's a... That's a $5 word if you've ever heard it, right? Septuagesima. What does septuagesima mean? Um, uh, have you ever heard of a septuagesima? Ge- septuagenarian, by the way? Have you, uh, you know what a septuagenarian is? It would have to be a 70-year-old. Yeah, someone who's, in his, someone who's in their 70s, right? Oh, okay. Uh, so a septu- septuagesima in the church calendar is means 70. Well, 70 what? Do you know, Lee? Well, supposedly 70 days, but... Yeah, yeah. 70 days from Easter. So we're counting off now. Uh, By the way, uh, every week uh, it it gets down. So, for instance, next week will be sexagesima, 60 days. The Sunday after that will be quinquagesima, which is 50 days, right? Uh, which means every seven days you actually have gone ten days, which teaches us not that, mathematically accurate. That the early church doesn't <laughs> count. You know, mathematics wasn't that important to them, evidently. Uh, but it's generally speaking, it's uh, seventy and sixty and fifty, and we learn that we're get each week we're getting closer to Easter, until we come to quadragesima, which is in the middle of the week, and it is forty days. 
from Easter. Uh, Ash Wednesday, we, we, we start Ash Wednesday, 40 days from Easter, which technically isn't even 40 days, because why? Because we exclude Sundays. It's actually 46 days, but we exclude Sundays because um, we don't consider them days of fasting. Uh, at any rate, we're, we're coming into this great season of the church in which we're preparing for, for Easter. And preparing, we've just finished celebrating um, the incarnation of Jesus, the, the nativity of Jesus, uh, Christmas. And now we're going to, this, this other great holiday of the church here is Easter, and we're getting ready to celebrate that. So this is the, this is the countdown to Easter. So we're at Septuagesma Sunday this this week and Lee would you read for us um, the Old Testament lesson for Septuagesima Sunday uh, yes that's from uh, Exodus 17 beginning at verse 1 and this is the uh, ESV the English Standard Version all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim but there was no water for the people to drink Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And then Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff which you st- with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will send you, be- send you, stand before you there on the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Okay. So this is, uh, by the way, a great lesson. Um, this is just after Israel has been delivered from Egypt. They've, they've uh, been set free from their slavery in Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea. And uh, now they find themselves in the, in the desert um, before they enter the promised land. And this is supposed to be a temporary period in which they're going to receive the law and, uh, and receive the covenant of Moses. And uh, God's going to covenant with them and, and the worship will begin. Uh, the tabernacle will be built. The sacrifices will be instituted. All these things that are going to occur as a preparation for entering into the promised land as God's people. But they face this crisis, which crisis they have faced before when the, when the plagues were happening and, and uh, Pharaoh was becoming even more uh, brutal and oppressive uh, while they were still in Egypt, when they were at the Red Sea and before the, the waters parted and they crossed the Red Sea, Pharaoh's army was uh, surrounding them and uh, getting ready to slaughter them. And yet God saved them, God rescued them, and here they are in another place at another time where they're facing a challenge, just as they did before. And uh, this challenge is that they they have no water. And instead of 
And, and this is what this is. Uh, you know, we just talked about trusting in God, right? Right. And for catechism lesson, well, uh, instead of trusting that God knew that the God who had already delivered them, the God that was still providing for them, instead of trusting that He would supply their needs, they uh, they begin to doubt. They begin to quarrel with Moses. And they begin to blame things on Moses. Now, the person they were really blaming was who? God. They were blaming God himself. But Moses uh, was acting at the behest of God, and so they quarreled with Moses. Well, then God tells Moses to go to this rock and to strike this rock, and from this rock would come water. This actually happens twice, and this is the first time it happens. And uh, from this rock, well, the, whoever heard of a rock bringing water forth, gushing forth water. Well, uh, Moses uh, obeys God, goes to the rock, takes his staff, and he strikes the rock. And as he strikes the rock, water gushes forth, and the people are able to drink. So God, again, rescues this people that doubted him. Well, the interesting thing about this lesson is that Jesus, in the Gospel of John, uh, brings this brings this lesson back to mind. When the Jews in Jesus' day, and this is 1,500 years later, are commemorating this event. This became an annual event that they would commemorate. And uh, when they were commemorating this event, Jesus himself stands in the midst of the assembly. And he says, whoever is thirsty, let him come to me. And he says, out of, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water right? And uh, so Jesus takes this rock and he applies it to himself. St. Paul will later do this also. St. Paul said, will say uh, that the rock that followed them was Christ. That, in, that, uh, that what, this, what this rock symbolizes is Jesus himself. And, it, and, and, and even more so than Jesus himself, it, it symbolizes, it, it tells us what it is that quenches our thirst is not a thing, but a person, but is Christ himself. And just as Jesus says in the Gospel of John, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water, when Christ is crucified, and uh, the, the Roman soldier comes to verify that Jesus is dead, how does he do it? Pierces him with the... Spear and he water takes, and blood flow out. That's right. He takes a rod and he pierces his belly and out of his belly flows not only blood, right, but flows water, right? Right. And it and it and that and it, and and what we are what we learn there is that it is the death of Jesus. It is the atonement that Jesus offered on the cross that provides life for a dying world. Right? Right. Jesus is the rock uh, that was busted open for us so that we can live and not die. Amen. Amen. Uh, okay, and then uh, we have a... Uh, you going to ask a question? Oh, no, I just said amen with you. Yeah, okay, yeah. Okay, yeah. Okay, good. Uh, so let's read the epistle lesson then. All right, this comes from uh, 1 Corinthians 9, or 1 Corinthians, uh, depending. Yeah, if you're, if you're uh, a certain presidential candidate. <laughs> Uh, 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, 
but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the same cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Okay. Uh, and, and we know uh, from Scripture, from the book of Hebrews, tells us that they were overthrown, or they died in the wilderness because of their unbelief. And really what Paul is warning us about here is, is, um, is unbelief. It is turning away from Christ. It's turning away from the salvation that God won for us in Christ. <clears throat> and so um, we don't live purposeless lives in Jesus. Now, we've been rescued because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Um, and we've been uh, saved from our sin. And we've been saved from sin in a sense. We, we're, not now, uh, we're not now just to live our lives as we did before in a life of uh, pleasure and, and uh, pursuing our own, our own pleasures and pursuits. Um, we are to, to live in a disciplined way in, in recognition of our, our Savior and all that he's done for us. We discipline our bodies. We, we don't give way to sin uh, because we know the tremendous cost that sin exacted uh, by the death of Jesus, uh, what it, what it took to save us from our sin was was God Himself dying on the cross for us. So, um, so that's the epistle lesson, and then we have kind of on a, a little bit different track. We have the gospel lesson for this Sunday, again Septuagesima Sunday, seven days, seventy days out from Easter. And Lee, why don't you read for us the gospel lesson for Sunday? All right, this is from Matthew twenty, beginning at verse one. For th this is Jesus speaking. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And uh, to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, Go into the, the vineyard too. And when the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a, a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. 
But he replied to them, to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. By the way, just before this parable, that Jesus says that phrase again. Um, he introduces the parable by saying, uh, so the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And then he tells, now, uh, can, you got the paragraph just before that. Can you read that for us? Um, this, this was, uh, the disciples were talking about leaving everything to follow him. Yeah. And, uh, and Jesus concludes by saying, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit, inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Yeah, this, see, this is coming off of Jesus has just met the rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler says to Jesus, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? You know, uh, he's looking for um, uh, something he can do to earn his salvation. Right? Right. Uh, really, the upshot of the rich young ruler is that he thinks that he's kept the Ten Commandments when actually he hasn't even kept the first commandment because he loves his money, he loves his wealth more than he loves the command of the God who, who speaks to him in Jesus Christ. And uh, I, I, we, I could really go into that lesson even more, but I won't. <laughs> I'm going to restrain myself a little bit and just say that that's kind of the context of this parable. And because the disciples then say, well, you know, we've left everything for you. What, what will we receive? And, of course, Jesus says, you're going to receive everything. You're going to receive it all. No one, no one who gives up anything is really giving up anything because I'm giving you everything. And so then he tells this, he tells this piece, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And then he tells this parable of workers, uh, day workers who are out in, the, out in the marketplace and they're waiting for somebody to hire them. Now, this is quite common in in the first century and even today in some places you know in Los Angeles and uh, uh, California different places where there are a lot of agricultural people going out to pick oranges or you know tomatoes or whatever it is agricultural field uh, sometimes these people are uh, we, we talk about uh, you know immigrants who are coming and these are the kind of jobs they get where they're they stand out and they wait for somebody to come along and hire them for the day in various jobs, uh, construction or, or house cleaning or whatever, well, they're waiting for somebody to hire them. They're, in other words, they're waiting so that they, they don't starve to death, right? Right. Well, and so Jesus uses this imagery, he uses this kind of situation to teach us about the kingdom of God, that God is, God is graciously calling us into the work of his kingdom, and in that kingdom, as we, um, as we love our neighbor, as we love God above all things, love our neighbor as ourselves, as we uh, serve God in, in the world, in our various vocations, as father or mother or son or daughter, or, or worker or husband or wife, uh, the various ways that God calls us to love our neighbor, um, he promises us that, that he's going to reward us, right? And yet the reward isn't based on our merit. 
here's these guys, they worked all day long. And uh, bore, as they say later, they bore the heat of the day. And they got the same at the end. They got the same as the, as the workers who were only hired for the last hour of the day. And, and what Jesus has the, the, uh, the employer responding, I choose to be generous. I choose to give. And folks, that's really the gospel. The gospel is not that we've worked or we've earned anything or even as the disciples here, they're, they're questioning, hey, we've given up everything. What are we going to get in the end? Uh, and Jesus is teaching them that, that you really haven't given up anything because he is here to give you everything. And, that, and, and, and the eternal life that God bestows on us by calling us out, you know, we could we could have languished in the marketplace waiting for someone to hire us, right? And and yet we didn't. God came along and graciously took us from that from that you know uh, condemnation, we might say, and he and he drew us into his kingdom, and and he rewards us not because of our work, but he rewards us because of his generosity. God rewards us not because we've earned our salvation, like the rich young ruler thought. You know, what shall I do to inherit it? What shall I do to earn eternal life? In a sense, what he's saying, what shall I do to earn eternal life? And, and Jesus' answer to him is, you don't earn it. And Jesus' answer to the disciples is, you don't earn anything. God is gracious to you. God loves you. And God loves us so much that he sent his only begotten son to, to rescue and redeem us from our uh, condemnation and from our, um, uh, uh, you know, lostness. Uh, and in, in his rescuing us, in his calling us into the kingdom, he, he, is, uh, he is rescuing us and he is rewarding us with something that we haven't earned and we don't deserve. But he gives it to us because he doesn't want us to be lost. God does not... God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Well, folks, uh, thank you for uh, joining us today on the Wittenberg Door. Uh, we want to remind you that if you don't have a church home, Gethsemane Lutheran Church invites you to come and, and uh, worship with us. Our, we have a, a Saturday afternoon service at 4.30, a smaller service that, that you're welcome to come to. Uh, and we have a Sunday morning service at 10.30 a.m., that we invite you to. Uh, Gethsemane Lutheran Church is located at 219 East Church Street. Um, it's uh, just before you get to Rocky's Bicycle Shop on East Church Street. We share actually share the same parking lot with Rocky's Bicycle Shop. And so we invite you to come. We invite you to be a part of it. And uh, we hope also that you have a, a blessed week, blessed weekend and a blessed week to come. Um, this show will re-air on Sunday morning at 9.13 and Wednesday night at 7.13, we invite you to uh, listen, and, and we invite you to join us next Friday for another edition of the Wittenberg Door. All right. This summer, they are going to poll people in the United States to see who should go on there. But it will be the first woman on the currency in like 120 years or something. Well, the women that they, they've come up with uh, wouldn't really make a... a, a a bill very good looking. I mean, the women did a lot of good, 
I mean, don't get me wrong, but they're they're kind of. Wait a second. What are you saying? If they put somebody like Marilyn Monroe, go ahead and say it. You don't want Eleanor Roosevelt's mug on the uh, well ten dollar bill. Well, or and, and Rosa Parks. And who else? Uh, Won't they airbrush them before they put them on the bill? I mean, can you imagine flipping out a bill and there's a ugly face looking at you? Now, wait a oh, second. Oh, <laughs> wait a second, Charlie. Well, I think it's about time that a woman gets on some... Yeah, if they put somebody good-looking on there. Oh, dear. Oh, <laughs> somebody that is famous. Somebody they have to be dead. What do you make of Trump, Charlie? You didn't jump in and did the white oh, thing there, but... He's a... He's an egotistical jerk. <laughs> what do you really think about it? But he knows enough to make millions. I guess we can't put him down for that. We can't put him down because we don't know how much he, he owes. He would not have a chance. I'm sorry, at an office. I really know he's got a lot of money. Come on, 